0: Blog Talk
1: Radio. Huy, eh papa ka opio, mahalou na milyo kilo kerude. Haha,
2: si minikako.
3: Something he doesn't hear when he goes on the air every week. A big applause for Doug Ford of Rundgren Radio.
1: <laughs> <laughs> All right.
4: oh, you think go, I could play guitar go, or something? Go, 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 go. Oh, hey, whoa, whoa, whoa. All right, so here we go. Welcome to another edition of Brunken Radio. We're here live at Toddstock Stock 2008. Why <laughs> y'all <laughs> ah, there? we go. All right. we got lots of fans here. You know, this show's only been on for about ten months. And I thought, you know, maybe one day we would be able to get Todd on for a little Q&A. Wasn't sure. I knew we could get a lot of people on, but I wasn't sure about Todd. But I never in a million years would have imagined that it would be behind his house on his property with his family and his extended family, his fans. This is quite a night. We're going to be doing a QA and a with Todd right now. His fans are going to ask questions. It's going to be quite a treat for you at home. We wish you were here, but um, you're not, so you're going to get to find out what's going on with us and hear from Todd tonight on RuggerRadio.com. But before I get into that, I wanted to make sure that I recognize the heart and the brain of this whole event, a special host for everyone here. Michelle Rungren has done a fantastic job. Let's hear it for Michelle. Checks in the mail, Doug. Checks in the mail. All right. All right. I want to thank Robert Fraser too, and Primal Sound for helping out with the sound tonight of tonight's show. So let's get started. His Q&A with Todd Rungren. Well... I'll go ahead and start it, and then we'll... is, is there somebody up there wants to ask a question already? I'm right. Okay. I'm right here,
3: and okay. my phone is ringing.
4: Okay. <laughs> oh,
3: <good laughs> great Lord. timing.
5: Identify
3: okay. It's Veggie Girl up here. Veggie um,
5: Girl, how you doing? I'm doing great. Cool. I actually getting enough tofu. I am. Good.
3: Thank you very much, and I'm really um, just making a comment to thank you so much for having us here. Um,
5: Thank you. Thank you. I, we put you all to work, and you made the place look really tight. <laughs>
3: is, it's just been an amazing... It all worked out. <laughs> it's been an amazing opportunity. You've allowed us into your home, and the Rungrins and the Grays have been awesome. So, <laughs> I, I just want to thank you for music that has changed my life, and... I just want to thank you more than ask you a question, so thank well, you. Well, thank you. <laughs>
6: there you go. Thank you. Hello, Todd. This is Jeff Braverman from San Diego.
5: What's up, Jeff?
6: How are you? Good. I um, want to say thanks also, but I do have a question, and it is a song that is on a bootleg called Cowboy Monkey. I don't believe it's you, but a lot of people think it is. <laughs>
5: Sounds like a great song. You know, <laughs> from the type. like a monkey in a cowboy suit, maybe.
6: Um, cowboy monkey.
5: Cowboy monkey. Yeah. I, uh, no. And it's yippi
6: I- 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 Kaye, Cowboy monkey. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I did write a song
5: about a monkey, but it was called King Kong Gay, So. Okay, so it is not it. you.
6: Very I'm not good. pandering
5: here. That's I, not it, necessary.
6: Can I ask one more <laughs> question?
5: While you're there, why not?
6: At the time you were doing um, Bad Finger, you were producing that album. Did you have any relationship with George Harrison? Because I have read in the past uh, that he was a little upset at the whole situation you taking over. True or false?
5: Uh, That particular interpretation is false. George, um, here's the actual story of Straight Up, the album. They started working with Jeff Emmerich, who was the Beatles engineer for like Sergeant Pepper and stuff like that. They completed an entire album and the record company and the Beatles or whoever was involved in decision making was not especially happy with the result, so George decided to take a crack at it. The problem with that is that George had developed this particular kind of sound that everyone is familiar with now with that uh, Phil Spector had some influence on. So he recorded some tracks. I think they recorded about four tracks or whatever, and they had this completely other sound. And then they then he got too busy with the uh, Concert for Bangladesh record. They had already recorded, done the event, recorded it, but he just got caught up in mixing it and stuff like that. He had no more time to work with Badfinger, so that's when I got called in. And from the time they started till the time I got called in, probably a a year had elapsed. So we went in and re-recorded some new songs, probably six, sorry, I don't remember exactly, some new songs. We took some of the Jeff Emmerich songs and tarted them up, and took some of the George Harrison songs and tarted them up. In particular, um, re-recording the drums or adding another drum track, because from my standpoint, the problem with the George Harrison tracks was they were using that sound of uh, the sound that they got, that the Beatles got the sort of like the end of their recording career, in which the snare used to be live, but now they were putting towels on everything, so it had this real thuddy sound, not very live, and I didn't particularly like the sound, so I had most of the drums re-recorded. We would add other parts and things like that, and then I took the George Harrison songs and the Jeff Emmerich songs and this and the new songs that we were recorded and then I mixed them all and it went out on the record and the problem was not with George, it was with me because George Harrison got production credit on day after day after I had, he essentially I I did meet George Harrison, it was a listening party for the album for Bangladesh I actually saw the drums that they recorded, that Ringo recorded on, (laughs) which had towels all over them and uh... And he said he just didn't have the time. He was done, and I should do whatever I want, use the tracks or not use the tracks. So I was, I was a little miffed when he wound up with the sole production credit for Day After Day. Wow.
6: Okay. Thank you very much.
5: And here you go.
0: Hi, Todd. It's Shanna Raleigh. Howdy.
1: <laughs> what?
0: Howdy. <laughs> That's
5: my name. Don't wear it out.
0: Uh, we're from Arizona, Colorado I took my husband to see uh, the new cars and we were wondering, I wanted to show him who you were but you showed us who the new cars were can you explain that?
5: Um, certainly can Uh, this uh, proposal came to me uh, first indirectly and then Directly from Elliot Easton, we sat down, and I'd worked with Elliot before on uh, an album by Jewel Shear called Watchdog, and also we had played uh, on the same stage together in the late 70s, early 80s, uh, a couple of times. So I knew Elliot, and they wanted to reform the New Cars, but uh, reform the original Cars, sorry, and Rick was just not into the idea. Apparently, he never did like touring. And since he wrote all the songs, he had all the publishing and got all the money and didn't have to tour. So um, so he was not into it. And um, they started looking for other people, a front band, and eventually my name came up. And I was at a particular point career-wise, I think pr- immediately prior to doing The New Cars, and I was on that tour at the time, was the tour with Joe Jackson. And I was starting to feel as if, you know, these, my solo one-man shows were getting pretty stale. I wasn't writing music that I could incorporate into those shows. So I had to kind of like stop doing those shows, because it was just the same songs over and over again. And uh, I wasn't learning to play them any better either. Um, so uh, anyway, I thought it'd be good to, you know, I've done the, this kind of thing before in a way. I've gone out with Ringo. I've done the Walk Down Abbey Road um, where I, you know, become more or less incorporated in some other um, musical situation. And so that wasn't a, a problem for me, playing somebody else's music. And we got together and had a little rehearsal to um, see whether it had a plausible sound. We uh, played through a few of the songs and we decided, yeah, it was plausible. And set about, you know, actually trying to learn all the material um, and go out as the new cars. Um, From that point on, from the time we decided to do it, everything became completely upside down and chaotic. The first thing that happened was that the record label decided that we had to make a live album before we had ever played a gig <laughs> anywhere. You know they said we need products you know for the tour and stuff like that, so we had to learn all of the music that appeared on that new car's album in five days or something like that, and then we did. I think, five nights of recording, four or five nights of recording, and called the best out of it, and made a record. But this is the most bass-ackwards thing I've ever been involved in. You do a live record before you've ever played live. And so (laughs) that was the first weird thing that happened. The next weird thing that happened was when we actually started playing live. About three weeks into the tour, Elliot was... um, was in the corridor of the bus and some a car pulled in front of the bus and the bus driver had to swerve and it threw Elliot against the bulkhead door and broke his collarbone. Now I have to say he was especially brave because he, fortunately he's a left-handed guy and it broke his left collarbone which means his guitar strap was on his right shoulder and he was a real trooper. He went through a couple more gigs but it essentially was like poking up out of it. <laughs> you know... It hadn't broken the skin, but it was well-separated, you know. And, and it, you know, went to the doctor and I said, cut it out. You've got to go under the knife, you know, and get this fixed. So our summer tour just ended like that. But the debts didn't end, you know. All the money, you know, <laughs> that we owed to people, you know, for getting this whole thing on the road, that didn't end. So ever since that happened, every gig we've been doing has been like playing financial catch-up. And, you know, sometimes we almost didn't get paid. You know, we were doing the gig for somebody else so somebody else could get their money. And after a while, no matter how much you like the music, it's just impractical, you know? (laughs) My mom wasn't getting her $500 check. (laughs) And so, you know, at at a certain point, we just had to say this is just not practical. You know, for one thing, Rick was so obstinate about letting us call the man The Cars, because he might have got a whim in his head that he would actually go out, and it would be The Cars, minus Ben, because Ben can't show up, but otherwise, you know, be legitimately called The Cars. So he refused to ever let us use the name The Cars. We were called The New Cars, and most people said, what the hell is that? You know, is it The Cars playing new material? Is it The Old Cars with different people? just And promoters and stuff like that. So the reason why... That was the reason why we did it, and that's also the reason why we're not doing it anymore. You know, is that it? We had our shot, and things just didn't fall into place. And you know, that's it. It was fun. Time was had by all. But
0: well, thank uh, you for that, because it. my husband really could see the talent that you were. In. Despite that, it
4: wasn't truly you. (laughs) Excellent. Also, apparently, though, you're going to be reunited with Greg Hawks for the Sgt. Pepper programs. Can you tell us a little about what those are?
5: Yeah. Well, that'll be three out of the five new CARS members because it'll be me and Prairie and Greg Hawks at least. So, who knows? We could bust into just what I needed at a moment's notice.
2: Hi, Todd. This is Jane from Maryland. Uh, Hi, Jane. Hi. Via Cleveland, which, as you know, and I'm sure everybody here knows, you were and are huge there. Um, I've heard explanations on why Springsteen was so big there and David Bowie and the DJs at WMMS who were responsible. I've never heard an explanation for who broke you and, and who got you out there in Cleveland.
5: It started with the NAS, as a matter of fact. Really? Really? Yeah, it went as far back as that. You know, the Nas was an unknown factor. We weren't getting a whole lot of radio airplay early on. And um, we uh, toured a bunch of towns. You know, the response was this, that, or whatever. But when we went to Cleveland, suddenly we had this, gig- well, relatively <laughs> gigantic, you know, I think it was an Agora or something like that, which would have held three, 400 people, but a big, enthusiastic, wild crowd. And you know what people maybe understand or maybe don't understand is a lot of the a lot of the quality of a performance has to do with how the audience responds to it you know and you can give you know you can play the notes and just you know give a mechanical performance just to get through the gig you know and get paid for it or you can turn it into with the cooperation of course of the audience and to some sort of other experience, that's the whole idea. That's why people pay ridiculous concert ticket prices because they're not expecting that they're going to get you know, each, each note worth one penny and then when they're all played, you will have your ticket price. You know, it's, it's a gamble, <laughs> it's kind of, you know, you're rolling the dice that you're gonna get something much greater than the amount of money that you spent for the ticket. So that was the great thing about Cleveland just from the very beginning, you know, the way they responded even to the NAS when I was nothing but a guitar player.
2: Excellent. Thank you.
5: Thank you.
7: Hi, this this is Chuck. Wow, and there's an echo. Um, I'm from the, (laughs) the other side of Ohio, Cincinnati. And have caught you there a few times, uh, never at Bogart's. The
5: bottom uh, side of Ohio, yeah. Exactly. Well, that that works. Yeah. That works, too. Um, and Yeah, and you didn't miss anything at Bogart's. Oh, that I know. Was I went plenty Miserable of for, for everybody.
7: <laughs> I, we heard <laughs> you on your 51st birthday, and you said, Isn't it great to not be at Bogart's? Yes. And that's the one line I remember.
6: Um,
7: <laughs> I've listened to your music since the uh, early 70s, and, and I've been an instrumental focus person, but you're one of the few people whose lyrics I listen to. And pay attention to uh, probably one of two or three actually, and um, a lot of them have have had a lot of impact for me at various stages of my life. Of of uh, just some of the directions you go. I'm curious who like some books and authors might have been that have influenced you over time, and maybe what's on your reading stand now, if anything.
5: Or, well, books are not um, necessarily or particularly uh, an influence on on my lyrics. Of course, the subject matter may have come from a book or something I read, but lyric writing to me, and I never really thought it would turn out to be that way, but it is poetry and I had to learn the rules of poetry in order to become you know, qualitatively, whatever kind of lyricist I am, to be able to express things the way that I wanted to and in that sense my influences are other songwriters you know are not authors they you know it goes as far back as you know my seminal influences like Gilbert and Sullivan and the a uh, way that unusual words are woven into the lyrics and um... and Sondheim or know, well, even classic songwriters um, of the thirties and forties and songwriters of today like Elvis Costello who understand um, what you can do with words besides simply having some vowels to pronounce over a melody and um... in that sense I uh at a certain point i would have maybe taken a little umbrage at being called a poet cuz that's so gay
1: <laughs>
5: but um but i do take a certain amount of pride in my lyrics in that i don't just dash stuff off in the end you know that i really kind of try to as well as trying to get the meaning across try and select exactly the right word The word that sounds right when you sing it, but also the word that completes the meaning. So, in that sense, yeah, it's um, a lot of people don't understand. Even other, even songwriters don't understand that to be the complete songwriter, you have to be a poet as well.
7: Okay, thanks.
5: Yeah, I remember Laura Nero was one person
7: you mentioned as well. Well, that's you know, quite obviously
5: she. She had a big influence on me, and it was the way that she would sometimes invent words, you know, in order and somehow even an invented word had uh, had a meaning to it. And you take the other extreme, like you know, cocteau twins, in which it's just all babbling, and but somehow you think it means something when you got to the end of the song. Hi,
2: Todd. Hi. My name is Sue, and I'm from Chicago, land. Okay. And first off, I just really have to thank you for what a great thing is going that you're doing for all of us. Fans. Isn't this fun? <laughs>
1: it is fun.
3: <laughs> and I,
2: I, More can't than a blanket, I need another here. cocktail.
1: <laughs> so
2: I thank you and your family for just hosting such a great time for all of us. Thank you. <laughs> I do have a question, and I wanted to know... When we look at this new album or listen to the new album what um what are you what we what do you want us to get out of this
5: well that's that's never the point i you know i have said this before, and i'll say it again. I do the music sometimes and oftentimes for myself to give myself something to listen to, and what other people get out of it is kind of you know out of my control really I'm trying to make something that articulates thoughts in my head you know thoughts that I have that are pretty unpoetic like I want to punch that prick in the face you know or something like that then you got to find a more sophisticated way of expressing that idea you know but it's something that I you know feel
2: so, what so, was your general thought on this?
5: In this particular record? Yes. You know, that would be like divulging too much since I haven't played it yet and you haven't heard it yet. All right. so.
1: <laughs>
2: May I ask you one
8: more?
5: Sure.
2: All right. I always have wondered what your thoughts were when people say Todd is God.
5: It's an easy rhyme, is my thought, you know. <laughs>
1: Well, that works. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks.
5: <laughs> Not a lot of imagination is what I think, you know.
7: <laughs> Hi, Todd. This is Ralph Garcia. If new Ralph. Good evening. Hi,
5: Ralph. How you
1: been?
7: All right. Thanks very much for giving me the best vacation of my life.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
5: oh, I have to make an announcement. You know, we're about to run out of beer. <laughs> So while yeah. you're out tomorrow, everybody pick up a case. All right. All right. We'll have plenty of beer for Sunday, but we can't get any more kegs, and we've been going through it pretty good. So. <laughs> I don't yeah. know why I said that while you were up, Ralph, but on <laughs> <laughs> any case. No idea what's the okay Okay.
7: <laughs> um, I've heard a couple of different versions of the story of how the Gibson SG Fool guitar made its way from Eric Clapton into your hands, and um, I know that you don't have the guitar anymore. Mm -hmm. Can you just take us through the whole process of how it went from Eric to
5: George and eventually to you? Well, you uh, blew the beginning of it already, you know? (laughs) Uh, Anyway, Eric Clapton, as everyone knows, during the the salad days of the cream, um, or were they just called cream? I can't remember. But in any case... um, Eric had this guitar that was painted by uh, a graphic you can't say company it was everybody was just like a hippie consortium in those days and they painted this very colorful guitar with a little cherub on it and stuff like that everyone recognizes it when they see it and um, Eric played that guitar in the first American tour maybe a subsequent one I saw the very first gigs Cream played in the US I saw them first at to no longer exist an RKO Theater where Mary the K put on one of his shows and there were eight or ten acts and each act would play two songs except for the headliners who might play three or four something like that the headliners on alternate nights were Wilson Pickett and Mitch Ryder and the Detroit Wheels and then on the bill was uh, Blues Project and Blues Magoos by the way um quite a few other like kind of smaller acts uh Murray the K's wife was a choreographer so called and so the weird part about it is that in between you know that you know set changes and acts sometimes it would show like a tom and jerry cartoon and sometimes Jackie the K would come out with six or eight dancers and do a whole kind of Las Vegas kind of like thing around it. you know everybody in the audience is looking at each other like what kind of weird hybrid is this? Uh, but anyway, you know the climax of the show, for most of us, and the reason why we came to the show, my buds and I, Woody's Truck Stop, we drove up from Philadelphia specifically to see Cream and and The Who. And The Who, every show, and they did like, I don't know, four shows a day or something like that, smashed a guitar <laughs> every show.
1: <laughs> I went
5: through so many guitars, I can't believe it. And they only played like two, three songs. They played Substitute in My Generation.
1: <laughs>
5: uh, and then Cream came out. And Eric either had a perm or had a wig. You know, we had that giant freaking afro. And that guitar, that painted guitar, which everyone was so, you know, completely... It was part of a, you know, this is God's hammer, you know, this guitar. Because Clapton was God. To all other guitar players, and during that stint, like right after they finished that, they played at a, a, a little club called the Cafe of GoGo in New York, and I stood about I sat about eight feet from his double stack Marshall amplifier and had my brains blown out every <laughs> single show. Uh, so that guitar was like like to me like uh, you know it was like a religious icon. Anyway, years and years later, I'm in Woodstock, and uh, Jackie Lomax is also living in Woodstock, and I get invited over to Jackie's house because he wants to sell me something. And I go over to the house, and it's the guitar. The God's Hammer is there in his house. It's in terrible shape. You know, He's been using it as a lap guitar. It's got a wooden bridge on it, you know, and the action is this high and all the paint is all like chipped off of it and everything and he says I'll I'll sell it to you for $500, you know, and maybe I'll buy it back from you. I think it was about 12 years later he tried to buy it back from me, but that was a no-go at that point, you know.
1: <laughs>
5: In any case, the the specific lineage was that Eric gave the guitar to George and I think, you know, if you want to delve a little deeper, it probably had a lot to do with the fact that they were screwing around with each other's wives and stuff, and maybe it was like a peace offering or something, you know. And then uh, and then apparently it was given to Paul Kossoff, the guitar player from Cream. What was that? Cocktail. Oh, sweet. Oh. I'm in love. Uh, Paul Kossoff the guitar player from Free who uh, died at a very uh, inopportune time you know so Free went away but uh, Paul Rogers continued with Bad Company and stuff like that anyway he had it for a brief time and I think it was from him or maybe it was the other way around maybe Paul Kossoff got it and then George got it and then Jackie Lomax got it because George produced Jackie I don't know because that was before my time. In any case, $500 for the Hammer of God, what would you do?
1: Thanks.
5: And um, I had the paint job restored. Uh, Eric had played it so much that all the paint had been worn off the back of the neck, and so much sweat had permeated the neck that the wood had rotted away. It was like balsa wood. And I played it for a while, and eventually a headstock just snapped off, so I had to have a new one built. Restored the paint job as much as I could, and um, and then played it uh, lovingly for um, for many years. Uh, a little anecdotal sidebar for you people who are tech freaks or whatever. There was not a stock SG. They took windings off of the bridge pickup to make the sound. Like more sharp to make it uh, a slightly more had to have more attack than a normal SG would have, and that's the story.
9: Thank you, brother.
5: You're quite welcome. Hey, Todd. Yes. (laughs) David from Redondo Beach, California. When it Hi, comes baby. to technology, thank you. When it comes to technology, it seems that you've been on the cutting edge, whether it's and you've embraced it all, whether it's synthesizers or video or the internet or the web, whatever you want to call it. What's exciting to you now? What's on the horizon? What juices you up when it comes to technology, whether it's um, guitar or pr- sound processing? Or I'm over or any technology. technology thing. thing. Are you? Can you tell? <laughs> Well, you know, the kind of stuff that I'm into now, you know, again, you're right, I'm still a little bit ahead of the curve. A lot of the lighting in the house, which we have yet to get working because it is so complicated and cutting edge, is this new, you know, all-digital LED lighting that can be any color, and, and, you know, each one of these units consumes, like, one watt of electricity, and they last for 20 years if you ran them 24 hours a day. So in that sense of building the house getting involved in the house project introduced me to a lot of technologies old and new. And, um, you know, I'm still kind of trying to thrash some of it out. We have yet to get into our, you know, full alternative energy thing. When we built the house, we didn't, because of the roof line, we didn't, we're not going to put giant solar panels up there because it's just going to look plain ugly. But until they make copper colored, you know, curvable, (laughs) <laughs> solar panels or whatever you know so you know, we've been thinking about wind our problem there is that we are on the flight path of migratory birds and so I think there's a pro- there may be a problem with getting the wind thing together but we are going to discover one way or another how to get you know the the energy part of it as well you know our, we're trying to keep the consumption part down as much as possible you know with the light you know with all low-voltage lighting and things like that. But we want to get, the, you know, the electricity production part of it involved as well so that, we, you know, we don't have to pay that stupid electric bill, which is mostly the pump in the <laughs> pond <laughs> at this point. So, <laughs> Thanks, Todd. My pleasure. Take care.
4: All right, let's, let's shift gears for a second. We've had some history and technical questions. I've got an email question here from somebody a lot of you all know, Rockwell O'Gale from Chicago. She would like to know if you ever get stage fright, and if so, how do you handle it?
5: I don't get um, literally stage fright anymore. I pretty much know it's going to happen when I get out there, which is my voice is going to work or it's not. And, you know, I have give fallbacks, I suppose, when it doesn't work. But. It's not fright, it's just apprehension that it's going to be a lot more work than it usually is. You know, if my voice isn't working, it's just twice as hard as if it is working. So, to deal with that, I've, you know, tried to establish the precedent that I don't do more than two gigs in a row and then have a day off to rest. And I, much to the chagrin of every publicist I've ever had, I'm not getting up at 8 in the morning, go to somebody's radio station, you know, to answer questions or do acoustic versions of my songs, you know, because it would pretty much sound like death clock at that hour of the morning. So even with that, you know, stricture, I still wind up doing three in a row, and sometimes the three in a row can can be a little rough. So... It isn't stage fright, necessarily, but I may spend the whole day long thinking, oh, this my voice is never going to open up, and it's going to be one of those nights. So stage fright, no. I think it's maybe because I have so much confidence in my audience now, you know, <laughs> because they've heard me at my worst. You know, <laughs> and so I, you know, <laughs> it may, may be a new low, I don't know, this tonight, but... I think I've already established that low bar. I believe it was in Santa Rosa one night uh, when I had no voice, and I got so frickin' drunk that I made about every third word. But I think everyone was so amused that. <laughs> and I'm not doing that again soon, all right? Okay. She had another
4: question that all fans, I'm sure, want to know. Speaking of your voice, do you sing
5: in the shower? You know, one of the things about this new house is that my space, my room and stuff, that's the last thing to get finished. You know, it's like dad gets the last piece of chicken, the big piece of chicken or whatever. You know, know, and everything has kind of, you know, nothing has gone wrong in there, but things that were supposed to happen have never happened. And I had my dream shower up there. It's this big collar tower with a waterfall on the top, and you can get the light option too, I guess. You know, but who needs that? And like about ten jets that pound the crap out of you from the back. You know, and it needs its own little reservoir of water because it pushes so much water at you. Now they're looking for some little tube, you know, or something like that. This is the most confusing thing any plumber has ever seen. And when I get that started. I'll let you know if I sing in it. All right? <laughs> yeah. all
1: right.
5: But I imagine it's going to sound like this.
1: Uh, yeah.
3: Okay, we got another uh, one.
5: I've uh, soiled myself. All right.
8: Good evening, Todd. Uh, this is Chris. Chris. I'm here from Washington, D.C. And I wanted to first add my thanks to all of the Expressions of gratitude that you've already gotten for I, what I can only characterize as a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. You're right because so I ain't doing this
5: again. I can't imagine.
8: I can't imagine you do it the first time. So thank you. Thanks to you and to Michelle. You and guys to have to
5: take the torch on from thank here. Thank you. you
8: know. um, my question sort of I guess broadens or follows up on some of the things you've said tonight about where you were in terms of your solo performances and performing with the cars. And I guess I wanted to ask you when it comes to um, recording and touring in general, as you look back on who you were, I don't know, 20 years ago, is it something that you still envisioned you'd be doing at this point? And then looking forward, is it something that you still enjoy enough to, want to do it as long as you're physically able, or do you have some goals or ideas on how long you're going to be <clears throat> continuing to express yourself that way?
5: Well, I'll tell you quite frankly, I would love to have a few more annuities, <laughs> because, it's, because the mortgage on this place is unbelievable, I'll tell you. But you know, the people that I admire, the musicians that I admire the most, are the ones who are lifetime... Musicians, you know, you Tony Bennett and B.B. King and people like that who are not only willing but able to continue to play un- until they drop. You know, I just, I don't know of any other thing that I do that gives me, you know, the kind of pleasure that other people get from hard drugs. <laughs> and, um... And at the same time, I don't think there's anything else that um, I would be so good at at this point in my life, you know, that I should just take a, you know, total detour and commit myself to that.
4: Hosting It'd parties, maybe?
5: What's that? Hosting parties, maybe? Well, it could be that, you know. I've always Well, I've tried to tell Michelle, you know, this is a business, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, <laughs> and uh you know there are there are other possibilities as well you know, I've always thought you know it'd be fun to work in films, but if you've ever been on a film set, you know that myth is gone, but it's another way that you could do something and maybe um create more options after all, it's gotta be a lot easier to just you know walk on and say one line than to play for an hour and a half so uh it's not as if i don't consider other things i don't think consider that other things m- i m- i might have to do as time goes on but at this particular point in time you know I'm, i figure i in the performance context i feel as good as i've ever felt i you don't you still feel enjoy I- it
8: as much as you always have what's that Do you still enjoy it as much as you always have? I I I mean I've seen some people (laughs) I thought
5: I thought I thought I thought I compared it to hard drugs, you know, (laughs) which most people enjoy. You know, I think I said that already. (laughs) Okay, thank you. (laughs) But yeah, you know, if you're talking about in the future, yeah, this is for the foreseeable future, this is what I got.
9: Hi, Todd. I'm Kelly from uh, North Carolina. Hi, Kelly. Um, I look up at the in the sky and I see the stars, and uh, I think of uh, Watts, and uh, you, my dear sir, are a true star and a genuinely benevolent human being, and I thank you very much for that. Thank you. Thank you. Take it home with you. Yeah. Um, I tried to come up with probably the corniest question I probably could come up with, and um, there have been some wonderful questions, and um, this one you might have to reflect back on uh, perhaps to your childhood. Um, it could even be something recent. But um, is there a movie that you uh, have watched or seen that pulls at your heartstrings, that maybe a scene in a movie that um, makes you uh, tear up?
5: I know it's hard, probably, to comprehend, but I can be a cynical person. (laughs) (laughs) And as I say, I've been on movie sets, and I've seen movies made, you know, and my problem is that when I'm watching a movie or a TV show, I can almost, you know, transparently, you know, be a fly on the wall, at the screenwriting session people who make movies nowadays you know I think you know Frank Capra made tear-jerking movies you know that were supposed to you know play at people's heartstrings and a lot of the purpose of that was to make them forget about other things Steven Spielberg is my least favorite director because all he's interested in is pushing your emotional buttons and he'll create any peculiar situation in the world, no matter how unlikely, in order to do that. I'm not interested in looking at a movie that wants to push my buttons. If a filmmaker wants to, be, wants to show me something that he truly believes and feels you know, and has invested himself in, then I would like to see that. If some guy is, in, is just interested in treating me as a ticket buyer, then I'm not interested in that. I tell you, I have this much interest in the new Indiana Jones movie, all right? <laughs> That's a big zero for you radio <laughs> listeners. Thanks, Tom. I don't Thank go you. to movies to have my buttons pushed, you know? And yes, there are films. I'll tell you. I'll tell you the film that made me weep all right. when I was about probably 12 or 13. I took my little brother to the movies with me and we went to see Gigo, starring Jackie Gleason. And this is the most pathetic, if that's a real world, if you don't talk about pathos, you know. It's a movie about an old, somewhat dim French war veteran who lives in a little basement like a rat, and he's mute and deaf. And all the people in the town make fun of him all the time. And I remember, you know, like there's so many scenes in the movie. And Jackie Gleason wrote the music, which is really tear-jerking. And there were so many scenes in the movie, in which I'm watching them, my brother's fidgeting and I'm punching him in the arm because I want to get all misty about <laughs> Gigo's, you know, pitiful situation. So, yeah, if you really want to get busted up, go see Gigo. And count your blessings, we were going we to show you Old Yeller one night here.
9: <laughs> thanks, Todd. No problem. Doug, thanks for running radio, too. <laughs> thanks,
4: Speaking of movies, there's uh, a rumor out that maybe you did one in 1972 called Intersection. Do you remember anything about this?
5: I know of it, yes. Okay.
4: Can you tell us a little bit about it?
5: Can, I really can't, actually. <laughs> I never knew what it was about. It's some peculiar idea. That the filmmaker had, but it was a um, it was just a bizarre opportunity. I got invited out to go to L.A. First time I had stayed in the Chateau Mormont First time I met Nikki Nichols, who became my costumer and feather applier <laughs> in later years, and uh, and did this weird little film in the studio that I did most of my records in. I got filmed in there. They filmed Wolfman Jack in another location. He's in it as well, and there's some other people. And it's some weird thing where I look like I look like I got fired from uh, David Bowie's band, but they let me keep the costume. (laughs) Um, I had these, you know, it was Nikki's first, you know, assault on my body. You know, probably not in the way that he imagined, but. He was applying all these rhinestones to me all down the, you know, the chakra points and ran out of eyelash glue and said, give me some glue. So they went up and found some crazy glue <laughs> and applied the rhinestones and a big blisters formed under the rhinestones after the shoot. And I got on the airplane and they were still stuck to me. I couldn't get them off. And I have scars everywhere. <laughs> One of the crazy glue, little rhinestones went. So, uh no, I can't tell you what it's about. I can only tell you my personal recollection. <laughs> so, <laughs> what did you do? Acting
4: on? in it or just music?
5: What's that? Did you I act? was just supposed to sing Wolfman Jack. I was singing Wolfman Jack in like a silver lemay suit. It was like the weirdest thing. I mean, Wolfman Jack was supposed to be a kind of a Motown kind of thing. So maybe if I've been wearing red satin or you know something like that, but it was like a silver lemay jumpsuit with all of the glam makeup. And, in or- and so I would have something to do while I was singing. They had me hold the, uh, the, kinda the remote for the tape machine that started and stopped, at which I'm dangling in my hand like a purse. <laughs> so <laughs> that's all I remember. Hi, Todd. My name's John Badiato. Hi, John. Your music has always had influence on my life.
7: And a silly question, is Lockjaw actually your invention?
5: The my invention? The story of Lockjaw. Did oh, you yeah, invent it's my it? invention. I, think that I don't think the Germans have such a horrible story. Okay. <laughs> and the Germans are a cheery, you know, lighthearted people. All right, that's cool. Thank so you, Todd. <laughs> no problem. <laughs>
6: Man, you're sick for having all these people here. (laughs) Yeah, you should hear the conversations we have when you're not around. (laughs) Yeah, you've been
5: cooking most of the food.
4: I'm
1: Bill Jack. (laughs) (laughs)
4: I'm
6: from from South Mississippi, if you can't tell from my voice. (laughs) I love it. I, I think me and my wife, Joanna, we might be the only people here from Mississippi. Uh, but i just want to thank you for rekindling the flame in me to go to hear live music all right i saw you at the house in new orleans when you did the acoustic set you had band in the box and my question is <laughs> my question is what happens to you when you go to the piano zone i'm not going there anymore
5: <laughs> uh, i am not going to the zone it doesn't mean i will never touch a piano again but I have come to realize my limitations as a piano player. And mostly has to do with the fact that I could probably be a serviceable piano player if I didn't have to sing. But what happens is I start singing and then I just go off to this place and I forget that my hands are supposed to be doing something. And that's when it all goes to hell. So, you know, I had to confront the fact that if I, yeah, if I really worked hard, I could be Billy Joel or something like that. That's not me. I much more enjoy the slop and you know, and all of the you know the accidental notes and the crap of playing a guitar. you know it's just more
6: fun to me, no matter how much it screws up my fingertips. Well, my mm. wife isn't here. Uh, she has a, a DMA in piano. She might be able to help you. Oh,
5: here we go.
1: <laughs>
6: I just don't have the time I'm sorry. <laughs> Thank you, Todd.
5: If I did have the time, I learned to touch type. <laughs>
6: appreciate
5: <laughs> that would be a more useful skill for me at this point
8: howdy todd Tony howdy. From west virginia how are you
5: west virginia in a house okay got it man hey listen i've noticed that on some of the later stuff you start to stretch your solos out a little more is this indicative of where we're going with this new uh... project because the solos seem to get longer and longer on fascist christ and uh, you're really playing well, it well, they're longer than, than the uh, recorded version so oh, yeah you know but that is the point you're know, trying to find grooves that we can stretch out on I can I'm not going to divulge exactly what the set list is <laughs> okay. for the next point there is new material and there is some noodling in it okay. but um, I think part of the arena rock thing, which is you know the new albums called arena, you know that you know and you know that I'm making it you know, contemporary attempt to recapture some of what that is, whatever that is. Well, one thing it isn't is endless long jamming. You know, it's big. You know, you don't want to lose the audience's interest. You want them pumping their fists and waving their lighters, you know, and flashing their tartans or whatever it is in whatever part of the world, you know, but that's the whole point, you know, is of this particular record is that you know the solos are supposed to be concise and melodic, and then you get on with the song.
4: I'm really looking forward to it. I think
5: I speak for everybody there. We're just uh, all stoked up for it, man. It'll be great. Cool. All well, righty. <laughs> World premiere. Just a dress rehearsal. Don't take it serious. There, right?
2: <laughs> Hello, Todd. This is Becky Chavarria Chaitis from Dallas, Texas. Hi, Becky. Long time concert goer, I wanted to ask you, well, let me preface it by saying this. Those of us who really enjoy how you treat the vocal and expression aspect in your music sometimes find ourselves listening to other songs by other people and I think some people here would agree, we sometimes secretly wish you would do a cover album of songs that, frankly, would be much better done by you.
5: <laughs> okay. Well, I, I certainly wouldn't try to approach it from the, no. the, uh, that standpoint. Well, no. you guys don't even know how to record your own songs. <laughs> you know, let me show you how it's done. Um,
1: <laughs> no, but, no just but that you know, us, I,
5: no, I have not. a lot of sympathy for that idea because sometimes I just don't feel like writing anything.
1: <laughs>
5: and so that would you know take care of that part of the problem. True. You know, but I don't necessarily imagine I could do a song better than somebody else. Uh, you well, know, somebody else's original. I just imagine I could do it different or I just imagine I would like to do it. You know, for whatever reason, like two little Hitlers, I just Yeah. I never thought I could do it better than Elvis did. I just liked the song and the message of the song and I thought if I needed something like that and the context of the record I was making. You know, I needed something mm-hmm. with that kind of feel and I didn't have something of my own, so you can do worse than, uh, you know, than nicking a song from Elvis Costello. But you know, in that sense, you know, I don't believe I did it better than he did. I just well, did it different.
2: I'm saying that we have yet to hear some songs. Name a song. One. Okay.
5: Give me a song to get this project started. Okay. All right? <laughs> okay.
2: Well, could I provide you a list? And hand it Just to call tomorrow. one out, all right? Go on, it's a radio show.
5: <laughs> okay, who wants to hear Todd do
4: his own music versus covers? Let's hear it. Well, uh, let's yeah. start a list. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Okay. okay.
2: Okay, enough of that,
4: thanks.
2: Uh, thank yeah, you. Thanks. <laughs> Hi, Todd, this is Liz Estrada from Redondo Beach.
5: Oh, got a seen thanks your name for a lot. Thanks name. <laughs>
2: <laughs> um. You were mostly just that dude my mom digs until I heard you were working with bad religion, and then I kind of started paying attention. (laughs) 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 Um, I was just wondering if you're paying attention to um, upcoming artists, what you see happening in the music industry now. Do any of the niche genres really appeal to you?
5: Um, I get... Production opportunities all the time of various kinds, and some of them are, you know, represent contemporary music. Some of them re- represent young bands who are playing music that has sort of been around for a long time. I got approached to do what essentially would have been just, uh, like a heavy metal album, which would have been a lot of fun. The singer was great, but the time thing didn't work out, you know. And, um, The uh, the whole thing about production, you know, and the whole thing about working with other people is it's a difficult thing to put together because, first of all, you know, I've done so many records and I've gotten a little bit kind of picky about what I do, and the criterion for what I do I have set pretty high. The first thing I have to do is respond to the material. Like the songs have to be songs that I'd like to hear more than once or that I wouldn't regret having heard at all, you know, things like that. So that's, you know, that's the most difficult thing, you know, is coming up with songs that sound new or original in some way. Anybody, once you come up with a great song, anybody can play it and it sounds pretty good. You know, you'd be surprised That's production isn't about stuff that goes on in the studio. It's mostly... At least from my standpoint, about hectoring the songwriters, you know, to just work a little harder, you know, you say like that's that's too easy a rhyme, like I said before, or you know, that doesn't make any sense, or that's grammatically incorrect, or whatever, you know. A lot of it is just picking at the material before you ever get in the studio, because once you get in the studio, you just want to play. You don't want to be like talking about should it be is or are, you know, or you know other kinds of things that have nothing to do with delivering a performance and the whole idea of, of the performance in the studio is that you want to forget you're in the studio and imagine yourself actually playing it for people. So my criteria in terms of production, in terms of what I'd be interested in producing has a lot to do with that and I have to say I don't hear a whole lot of bands that I would really kind of, you know, to have a sleepless night over, you know, to produce. I have to say that it's more like the bands that I could have produced but never did produce, you know, are more of a concern for me than you know what the mu- next next one might be. I had pro- I had an opportunity to produce um, Talking Heads, but I was already doing a project at the time and couldn't do it, and then, so they got Eno to do the record. So that would have been if it hadn't done anything for the career it would have been fun for me you know (laughs) you know and i I'd been in you know there other people in the music business who my admire and who also have some admiration for me where my name has come up and maybe it just seemed like it'd be too creepy or something (laughs) like that you know I actually I heard from Pete Thomas that my name came up in context of producing an attractions album, Elvis Gasolini attractions, and I would have killed to do that. But for whatever reason, you know, went a different direction. So those are the things probably that you know, I would, you know, I would have been more concerned about than whether I can find a new band to do. Eventually some really talented act with really good material is going to show up and then I'll do a record with them. Thank you. Thank you.
3: We've got a couple more up here, Doug. Is that uh, how okay? How long
5: is the line, anyway? <laughs> uh Yeah, just on. thank God it hasn't rained. Two more.
3: <laughs> Two more. Okay.
10: Hey, Todd. My name's Bill Godby. I'm I'm living uh, here in the islands over in Hilo. I've uh, been here a while. Come from Flint, Michigan. And um, what I'm wondering is how has living over here for 12, 15 years affected you as a human being, and you know what you write, and and uh, you know also a secondary question here: How do you think this is going to affect you in in the big picture of your your life, you know, in the next this 10 event, years? you mean? <laughs> <laughs> or oh, being or know, living theory here. Of, of, there's a relationship between the uh, angst you experience in your everyday life and struggles, uh, you know, paying bills and so forth in mm-hmm. terms of your creative oh, output yeah. okay. and being <laughs> comfy. And, oh, I get and your drift. God, all right, right, all right, all yeah, right. I get your Watch drift. Watch you all sit right, there yeah,
5: in yeah. the morning. And what okay, you? all right, don't rub it in.
10: <laughs> <laughs> all right, so expound on that. Okay. I'll be happy. And, man, mucho mahalos to this <laughs> event. Sweet. This is tremendous. There's nothing to compare this to. This is just...
5: Awesome. Thank so, you. Thank
10: you very thank much. Thank you very
5: much. I'm not actually like a, you know, I didn't suddenly get, you know, look, you know, throw a dart in a globe or something and say, I'm moving there. I've been coming to Kauai since the 70s. Um, someone suggested, you know, I, want, I needed to get away for a little while. Someone suggested uh, why don't you go to Kauai? And I had never thought about Hawaii, the Hawaiian Islands at all. But they said, this is kind of like out of the way, really pretty, stuff like that. It wasn't a giant tourist spot at the time. And so I came over here, and I kind of developed a little flirtation, let's say, with the island. And then I just kept coming here over the years, and it became like a place I came, you know, a place that I would spend time in, especially to just get away and be alone and... And you know, and deflate and stuff like that. You know, to just kind of clear my head. And we came over on a um, on a trip. At, I I had some people who were working with me on um, video projects. I was um, I had a studio for a while that was funded by a company called New Tech. I did a video called. Change myself, and it was the first video that had been done all on desktop computers, computer, uh, you know, computer-generated video. And so after I'd done it, they were so impressed with the result that they asked me to set, a, set up a studio out in San Francisco where we would kind of bang on their software and hardware and try and create as much cutting-edge stuff as we could. And so change myself, turned into a whole business in a way. Um, did I forget the question?
4: <laughs> he actually, I think he wants to know why you don't play Hawaii very much.
5: Oh, oh, yeah, Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. that okay. was the oh, secondary question. Yeah, yeah. I got, I got, I've, I've got been into here a t- elaborate never, digression. I'm sorry. Okay, no, I, I just, know where I am. I know where I am, man. Don't help me. Come on. So anyway, we had, uh, you know, there's this event called SIGGRAPH, this e- a yearly symposium of computer graphics and back in the late 70s early well no the late 80s early 90s you know was still computer graphics is relatively new now they have like you know 100 photorealistic people battling neo in the in the matrix you know and stuff like that but in those days just to get something some anything that looked believable was a feat so these events, you know, were big kind of showcases for whatever it is you could do. And we would pull these two-week, 24-hour-a-day kind of, we got to get this done, blah, 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 blah. Everyone's flying in. You know, I haven't had any sleep. Everything is last minute. You're still in the hotel room rendering the last frames, you know, trying to get this all done, you know, so you can showcase your work. You know, we'd gone through one of these Things And then I thought, let's just take everybody out to Hawaii. Not a lot of people, actually, about five, six people. But, you know, let's all go out to Hawaii to Hawaii and relax after the, this big push. And it happened to be about eight months after Iniki flattened this island. The eye of a hurricane went right over this island. And you wouldn't believe, looking at it now, what it looked like right after that happened. It's like someone took a hedge clipper and went right over the whole island. And that's why there are chickens everywhere. <laughs> all of the domestic chickens got blown up in the air and wound up other places and now they're all feral again. If you catch one, don't eat it. It's not worth it, you know. <laughs> but in any case, you know, that we came here about eight months after that and every time I'd come here I thought when I retire, you know, when I get old, you know, this is where I'd like to live maybe, you know, and so would always look for a place that it might be worth the trouble to buy or something like that. And, you know, never rea- ever made the commitment. Anyway, we were here right after the hurricane. And I thought, it's n- real estate's never going to be cheaper than it is now, yeah. you know, <laughs> they just let a hurricane come through here. So, We started looking at property, and maybe over three days we looked at various things. We looked at a a place that Brian Wilson from the Beach Boys owned that was right up on the beach, you know, past but not too far. You know, they bought when they thought they were going to live in Hawaii. Sylvester Stallone over here had built a polo field because he thought he was going to live here. You know, there are so many people who have been through here thinking they're going to live here. And I probably was like one of those people until like on the last day that we were looking, we thought, whatever. And we came through the driveway here and looked at this view. (laughs) And suddenly, you know, I'm in love. (laughs) And we knew that this was the place. You know, if there was any way possible that I could get this place, I was going to do it. And over the last 10, 12 years, we have really been through the fires of hell to get and keep this place. First, the original guy that owned it was, he was a prick. (laughs) He was a frickin' prick. You know, he tortured us over this, you know. First time we looked at it, you know, he said, oh, here's the price for it. It's two lots, actually, in Hawaii. That's so we could build a studio over where you're camping. Because you, you can only build a certain size building on any lot here. So we were going to build over there a, a studio. And we needed to have two, ideally have two lots next to each other so we could have the house and studio. Anyway, it was all perfect, you know, and he had an asking price. But the first time we came, he wanted all cash, no paper. He wanted all cash for it. So we just couldn't make it, you know, just wasn't happening. Uh, A year or so later, um, came into something of a boon, of a a cash boon that had to do with meatloaf. (laughs) And (laughs) I kind of cashed out of my original production thing with meatloaf and got a big chunk of cash. And so we said, now we can do this. And we thought, oh, this won't be here anymore. We'll have sold it. And we uh, went online, we checked it out, and we found, oh, it's still available. We called the realtor, still available. And, he said, and, the, and it was like at a bargain price, you know, because he hadn't sold it over the last year. Soon as he found out it was us, As <laughs> soon as he found out it was us, it was two lots, and the last two, two separate lots were a certain price. If you bought them both, you could have it for a bargain price. As Soon as he found out it was us, he said, oh, one of the lots is sold. So if you want to buy lots, you're going to have to pay full price on both of them. And then he started acting like we weren't good enough, you know, to be Kauaians. This guy is from New York. He made his fortune making hangers for clothes, you know, from the garment district, the guy is. You know, he's this freaking nebbish that moved to a New Hampshire ashram because he had a quintuple bypass, you know, and he's trying to bring his stress down, you know, and he's. Freaking with us, you know, trying to get every last dime out of us and telling us we're not good enough to live here and that's why, you know, you got Tessa, so the final thing, the final thing that we had to go through is we had to have breakfast with him in Woodstock, you know, like the Woodstock Cafe. Michelle had to weep for him. (laughs) Which she will do, you know, she's an actress, you know, she she will weep on cue. So she wept for him, and I had to escort him around the grounds of Woodstock 1990, whatever it was, you know, the second Woodstock. I had, because we were playing there, we had our own little installation, and I had to escort him around the grounds before he would, like, sell us the property, you know, at the ridiculously extorted price that he came up with. So that was the first thing we had to go through, all right? So since I took every cent I had and put it into this property, the IRS came after me the next year and <laughs> said, where's our money? And I said, well, I don't got it. I bought property with it. <laughs> and at that point, you know, it's just then it became a battle with them. And that's an ongoing battle, of course. You know, we're all even. Don't worry about it. Please, don't come pressing a $5 bill on my hand after this. <laughs>
1: because,
5: you know, We're at a whole other level with them. So... But in any case, yeah, it's been pretty much a freaking battle all the way. So we finally, you know, like three years ago, we said, I, we think we can do this. You know, If I work my ass off, continue, we think we can build this house finally. We've had the plans for 10 years. So we started building the house. And just as we're finishing the house, what happens? Mortgage crisis.
1: <laughs>
5: Nobody can get a mortgage anymore. Well, we got our first. Anyone here a mortgage agent? Can you give us our (laughs) second mortgage, somebody? Please, you know anybody? All right. So anyway, at this particular moment, we're working our way through that mortgage crisis just like everybody else, you know, who owns a home or has built a home or something like that. So staying here, you know, living here is not easy in the sense that, you know, trying to... Trying to create a home and keep a home, it's hard all over. You know, it's not any easier here. I just feel like I've, uh, the one thing I did right is I got the spot. You know, mm. we got the spot. You know, I have the house that I want. All I got to do is figure out a way to keep it. And the way to keep it is you people buying concert tickets. Yes. <laughs> right? And a new album, of course. <laughs>
0: Hello, Todd. Uh, my name's Ronnie. I'm from London. Um,
5: Welcome. Uh, you must you. be terribly jet-lagged.
0: Not at all. I've been, <laughs> here, for, been here for a week. It's been the absolutely best week of my life so far. Um, now, you, since I first fell in love with your music in the early 70s, you've covered topics as diverse as um, uh, cremation and making coffee. Mm-hmm. And, uh, <laughs> uh I wondered um uh, as a perhaps a rather predictable final question for the q and a session um what has been your most favorite song, and why
5: um, oh, I suppose the most predictable answer would be they're like my children, and I love them all. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I don't dwell a lot on material that I have done. You know, I've got 13 new songs that I'm trying to remember the lyrics for, and I'm so totally possessed with that at this point that you know, I, it, it's just hard to focus on other music. It's hard to remember other songs right now. Um, you could say that I might have a favorite of the new songs. And, um, I'm not sure whether I should divulge what it is at this particular point, because that would be like giving something away, you know? We <laughs> so won't tell anyone. I would go say, i am say well, my favorite song is likely to be one of the new ones you'll hear on Sunday. There you go. Okay. <laughs> and why? Pardon me? And why? And Why? It'll be the one that gets the best reaction.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Thanks from everyone for watching. Thank you, and say hi to
5: all my London friends when you get back. Will do.
0: Thank you very much,
5: Todd. Thank you. Love you. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. That's
3: what we've got up here, Doug. Do you have
4: a question for Todd?
3: Well, of course I have a question, but (laughs) it's not very intelligent after all of these great questions tonight. But I have to ask, because this is my one opportunity to do so, Mr. Rundgren,, mm-hmm. when you are traveling on tour, how do you do your laundry?
5: I don't
3: there you go <laughs>
1: I Thank wear the you.
5: socks for about you know like four or five days, and I throw them out and buy new ones, otherwise. If I'm not on stage, I wear the same damn clothes every damn day. That's why they call me Pigpen.
3: <laughs> <laughs>
5: all right?
3: Well, thank you, Pigpen. Thank Pen. you.
4: <laughs> Has anyone here seen the This Goes to 11 t-shirt by chance? A <laughs> <Once laughs>
5: yeah. <laughs> couple times. Very nice.
3: That's all we got up here.
5: That's all it. right, everybody. Very nice. Are we going to have movies tonight? Perhaps. Yeah, all uh, oh, <laughs> Yeller. Okay, all right. Intersection. So you got Gigo on there, <laughs> Till? Um, <laughs> The wailing and gnashing of teeth. Okay. All righty. Have a good evening, everybody. Tiki Bar is open. Can can everybody uh, stick around? uh, I forgot. The other bar is open as well. Yolani Bar, right. Okay. (laughs) I'm in trouble. The other thing is that if you want to witness the. Traditional interring. Wait, let of Veggie Girl get out of the room. What's that? Oh, sorry, let Veggie, veggie girl, girl leave the right. room. <laughs> <laughs> the interring of the traditional meal that's going to happen very early tomorrow morning, maybe seven or eight o'clock, something like uh, that. They
3: said they're going to try and make it nine so that everybody can kind of well, see. I hope it's
5: cooked. I know, minute, you know, I know,
3: but they're going to pull it out at six p.m.
5: But in any case, you can see the, you can watch the preparation and the interring. In other words, this hole over here. Maybe somebody fallen into and in they're <laughs> drunken stupor um, <laughs> that's called an emu that's where we bury the pig and all the other contents of the evening's meal um, and they will go through a whole preparation thing and they will you know you, they will put rocks inside of the pig, hot rocks that they will make and stuff like that. It's a whole little procedure very interesting for you and culturally enlightening so even if you are a vegetarian, you may just want to see it because.
3: No, they're not going to want to see it. it. No, right. no. Also, oh, I feel a Sun- Sunday night's concert will be earlier than you think. Todd, what time do you think you're going to go on?
5: We are going to try to time it to be approximately an hour before sundown. In other words, we want, we need some daylight.
3: So like six fifteen, six thirty, something yeah, like
5: that. Yeah, it's a, somewhere between I think six thirty and seven. Okay. Tomorrow
3: night. Dinner will be before that.
5: Okay. No, not not tomorrow we, night. Sunday night, sorry. Also,
3: you probably haven't heard it from us, but we've had I'm a really to
5: me? no like oh, both
3: in. of us have said we're having a really good time too. Everybody's been really great and we're and we're very happy.
8: Yeah.
5: yeah. You have been far less trouble than our friends. <laughs> Don't tell know. them that. Oh, yeah. You've been terrific, Actually. thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> Sold over. All right. Okay, okay over hit the spin. bar.
8: <laughs> now we're done. <laughs> Thank you.